0: be with you let us pray Lord Jesus Christ you stretch out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace so clothe us in your spirit that we reaching forth our hands in love may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name amen please be seated all right so we have been talking about the forgiveness of sins, uh, particularly with reference to uh, grace. Um, what is grace? Unmerited favors—a great, a great definition. Absolutely, the power of God present in the life of the believer to do His will. Good. Well, let's turn to 137 and answer the question. (laughs) How about that? Um, This is page 68. I think it's important to to focus on this for just a second. Grace is the gift of the triune God's love, mercy, and help. So there's three aspects there that we'll, we'll go through. What is grace? Grace is the gift of the triune God's love, mercy, and help, which he freely gives to us, who because of sin... To serve only condemnation. If we had no uh, sin, would we still need grace? Yes, we would actually still need grace. Why? Without God, would the world exist? Would anything exist? Would, it, would anything continue to function the way it does? So, yes, we'd still need grace even if we had not sinned, but um, we, don't, we don't deserve it for sure. Um, so, grace is the gift of the triune God's love, mercy, and help. Um, and in this sense, love is not just God's kind of kind feeling towards us. What is it? Yeah, it's his, it's his sacrificial action towards us, okay? uh, his gift of self to us, his mercy now we often conflate mercy and love, but they actually are different. What's the difference? Mercy is always, usually linked to pity. That <laughs> God actually looks at our at our sorry state and is moved to pity, moved to action uh, in in our uh, because of our state. And help. So God helps us. Um, it's also important that we look at this also as. Um, You know, grace is not merely the grace of the Father, it's not merely the grace of the Son, and it's not merely the grace of the Holy Spirit, but the grace of the triune God, um, the gift of the triune God. And he freely gives it to us, um, who, because of our sin, deserve only condemnation, and we'll say more about that in a bit. Question 138, does God give his grace only to Christians? No, God graciously provides for all people. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. However, he shows his saving grace by bringing to faith those who are in Christ, those who are far from him. All right. So here, and it's important to delineate between different types of grace, um, and there have been uh, several. Um, uh, But it is important to note that um, that. The, the kind of grace that exists in creation is the kind of grace that keeps planets, from fall, from, from, keeps planets in orbit, uh, keeps gravity at a constant, keeps the speed of light at a constant. Uh, you can only imagine the disaster that would happen if any of those uh, failed for even a moment. Yes? Um, the fact that you know this from, uh, you should know this from physics, just how much power is held in one atom? Okay. Well, we know that, you know, what, it, what is a nuclear bomb but that? Releasing all of that power, um, of course, it it stays where it is and it stays put and doesn't destroy things. Why? Well, not only because we live in a in a universe which is bounded by the laws of physics, yes, but also because the, we see God's intent continued in creation and continually upholding uh, creation. Um, of course, uh, Scripture speaks of us as, as upholding creation by the word of His power. Um but we do speak of certain kinds of grace uh, which which are poured upon those whom God brings to faith in Christ and I'll outline them just just basically they're not held in the catechism because it would be too long if we outlined everything um, but classically we've spoken of uh, uh, three different kinds of grace and there are, more different kinds of, there are more other kinds of grace but I only want to talk about three this morning and the first is prevenient. Uh, prevenient grace is the grace that draws us to conversion um, Augustine, Saint Augustine, actually taught on this kind of grace, um, and there's a reason for this. If we could be drawn to conversion without grace, what would that mean? Yeah, that means we could save ourselves, right? Um, and that's actually a heresy called Pelagianism. <laughs> and and to guard against this, Augustine teaches that there's a kind of grace called prevenient grace, meaning grace that goes before us. Um, so. Let's say that you became a Christian at, I don't know, 20, 22, something like that. And you can see the ways that God is active in your life prior to that time, yes? Um, I, you know, I can look at my life and see the ways that God is actively working in my life, even though I was completely unaware of it um, prior to a certain point. Um, this is that provenient grace. It's grace that draws us to conversion. We can also speak of actual grace, yes? Have you ever had something really awful happen to you? Or something really trying happened to you? And you think at the end of it, were it not for God's help, that would have been a total disaster. Yes? Um, Something like, my goodness, have you ever been in a car accident and escaped with just your life intact? Um, Have you ever been in the position of save someone's life? And you think, I couldn't have done that on my own. We're talking about actual grace there. Maybe it's something really simple like, uh, I'm having a really hard time teaching this class. (laughs) And you ask God for help to teach the class. I'm struggling with this student, or I'm struggling to take this class, or I'm struggling with this concept. Um, That was like me in, uh, believe it or not, college... uh, geology, which I hated, um, and I, I simply prayed, Lord, let me love it, and uh, and I walked away actually having an appreciation for rocks, which I did not have before. Um, that's actual grace, right? It's grace that actually, that's active, that works, that's, that is actually attached to acts. And then we can speak also of sanctifying grace, the kind of grace uh, which, which sanctifies us, um, which in fact uh, perfects us. Remember that old, we said this last week, uh, there's a great saying from the medieval um, theologians, uh, particularly Thomas Aquinas, that grace perfects nature. Um, Question 139. For what purpose does God give you grace? God gives me grace in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, the healing of sin's effects, growth in holiness, preservation through death and judgment, and my ultimate transformation into the image of Christ. This is very important. Um, The catechism begins and ends, in fact, with a vision of human life as uh, being uh, perfected and reformed and remade and refashioned into the image of Christ. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh Uh-oh, there's another catechesis fail. I didn't know until several years ago. Go ahead. So that's certainly part of it. It's an important part of it. How do we see the perfect image of God in man? In human beings. In Christ, right? So would we not say that to be made in the image of God is to be made to be like Jesus? That's, That's the answer that we need to get to. Which is this That he In both his human and divine natures Shares in the glory of the, only, of, of the only God Yes? He is a partaker of that divine uh, nature um, And what is, how does scripture speak of us? As Partakers of the divine nature So that by grace You and I can actually become uh, Partakers of that divinity um, We can share in that glory go ahead right common grace is that rain that falls on both the just and the unjust it's the uh, it's the uh, the grace that exists in nature it's that holding planets in their course it's uh, you know making sure that the Sun shines during the daytime and the moon <laughs> illuminates the night it's 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 that Normal, regular, like everybody has it. Now, we will talk a little bit about. Um, well, no, we won't. There's not opportunity for that. Um, it is to say that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, yeah, there there is grace in nature, isn't there? I mean, we we see this all the time, right? And, and Paul speaks of this um, for instance Romans chapter 1 there is actually uh, a uh, there's a there is a there is truth revealed to us in nature it can be perceived it can be understood it can be known um, and uh, and this is not unimportant um, and and that common grace uh, is to say that God is revealing himself to us in nature yeah exactly um, but it's also just, you know, not letting things be obliterated immediately, right? <laughs> It's this kind of, uh, uh com- very common grace. All right. Um, where were we? Okay. So the purposes of grace. We were talking about question 139. God gives me grace in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Yes, we know that. The healing of sin's effects. Um, Perhaps you can think about that in your own life of, of sin that you've committed So often and so regularly That it begins to be like Like uh, well, you, I've known people through the years who lie so much That they don't know what it's like To tell the truth They literally don't know what it's like um, And yet They can actually learn it Right By grace they can learn what it's like To tell the truth and actually become A person who tells the truth um, grace can he- can heal sin 's effects um, i 've known people through the years who have who have had horrible you know grown up in absolutely disastrous family situations yes um, and yet by grace have been renewed um, and have have come to um, come to be healed of, of sin 's disastrous effects. Uh, grace also brings growth and holiness. Um, in in amazing ways really um, i don't know if you can perhaps maybe think about this what you were like ten years ago hopefully you can say my i've grown in holiness that's that's wonderful uh, not as much as i'd like to but i have uh... that's good preservation through death and judgment which we'll talk more about uh... in the coming section but it is important that god's grace preserves us right i mean there's this kind of idea which is uh... very unfortunate very sad um, that in death, our bodies and our, indeed our natures are sort of obliterated. Um, they become nothing. But we actually hold that God preserves us through death. Um, preserves who we are. Preserves our, even our nature through death. Um, and also to be preserved through judgment. That's an act of grace, is it not? Because what do we deserve in judgment? Condemnation, death, etc. And... We wouldn't be here if it were not for the fact that the church holds out to us the the hope of everlasting life. And my ultimate transformation into the image of Christ. So there's that last bit. To be transformed into the image of Christ is to be transformed into one who can again share in the glory of God. All right. Shall we move on? Okay. I mean, keep this in mind. Scripture begins with... A garden, yes. And there's a tree. And what's the tree? There are two trees, actually it's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at the end of Scripture, there's another garden with another tree. And what's there? The tree of life, again. Um, and you see this image of a renewed humanity uh, that has been redeemed and has been sanctified and has been set apart. Uh, that, that rejoices in the glory of God forever. Okay. Is God's grace only for your religious or spiritual life? No, God cares about my whole life, and His grace in Christ is at work in every aspect of it. This is really important. Um, we as uh, modern Christians tend to comp- we tend to be experts at com- compartmentalizing life. Yes. Say, so I've got my spiritual life, which is what happens on Sunday mornings, and then I leave that behind at Eagle Christian Academy, and I go out, and I live uh, as a banker or a lawyer or, God forbid, an insurance salesman, right? And, uh, and that's, that's, my, that's my working life. And then I've got my home life, and I've got maybe my life at the bar, and I've got my life at school, and I've got all these other portions of things, right? Um, and you know, we kind of have the God of Sunday mornings, yeah, right? In fact, if you, if you actually get into a deep conversation with American young people today, you'll be shocked at just how compartmentalized they've become, which is that, you know, God sort of comes when I call him. He, he wants to be a part of my life only when I want him to be, and then I sort of let him, and then, they, then that works. That's how it works. Um, no, the answer is that God's grace is about the whole of life, um, redeeming every part of it. Um, so I'll tell you. I'll, uh, I'll say a little bit. Uh, my brother works for a for a Christian company. That's it's a, they build houses in Lubbock, and uh, and you say Christian company. What's that like? Well, it's like this. Um, first of all, they give an, an unbelievable amount of money away to mission projects, etc. They build good houses that are affordable. Okay. They pray together before they start the day of business. Do you have to be a Christian to work there? No, but everybody 's invited to come and pray before the day begins um, and and it 's a wildly successful business <laughs> um, but but that 's beside the point. The point is that um, that they take uh, their faith seriously when it comes to how they run their business um, and I was asking him about this once I said so so you have a warranty on your houses. What's that like? He said, well, it's, it's an unconditional warranty. So, okay, so say you've got somebody that's just really painful about repairs. Oh, yeah, that happens occasionally. Like, you know, they're, they're calling you when the toilet gets clogged. Yeah, that happens. So, so, so what do you do? And he said, well, if it gets to a certain point, we just offer to buy their house back from them, and we will pay their closing costs on their next house. Because we take their satisfaction that seriously. And hopefully they'll experience, and he said, hopefully they'll experience a certain amount of proper shame in having abused it that much. But frankly, that's not our problem. And so the unconditional guarantee stands. Um, And and I'm not saying you have to run your business like this, but I'm saying it it might be something you think about, right? Because what they've said is they've said, we're not going to compartmentalize our lives, um, we're going to be Christians at church, and we're going to be Christians in our workplace, and we're going to be Christians in how we treat our employees, and we're going to be Christians in how, how we do X, Y, Z, and down the line. Um, that's, that's, a, that's an incredible vision. Um, and, and indeed, that's a way of thinking about how God's grace can be active in every aspect of life. Question 141. Can you earn God's grace? No. God gives his grace freely and enables me to receive it. Everything I should I do should be in response to God's love and grace made known in Christ. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we love because He first loved us. This is utterly essential that I mean if, you, if you're gonna understand one basic thing about Christianity, this is the thing to understand. It's that um, any idea that you and I have to be the first one to act. Towards our sanctification, towards our salvation, towards our redemption, towards knowing God. If if the if the first move falls to us, you don't get un, you don't get Christianity at all. Um, Christianity always begins with God's movement, God's grace, God's action, God's purposes, um, and the rest follows. Um, there was a there was a sect of uh, of uh, people in the 3rd and 4th centuries called Semi-Pelagians. Now, Pelagius was bad enough, right? The idea behind Pelagius is, you know, he's, he's saying, listen, you can, quite apart from grace, merit your own salvation. Semi-Pelagianism was like this. Well, yes, 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 you absolutely need God's grace, but you must first ask, you must first seek, you must first knock at the door. Which, of course, is very powerful, because what is it? It's straight from the words of Jesus. Um, and the response of Orthodox Christianity over and over again was this. Were it not for Jesus standing on the other side of the door and bidding you come in, then it would make no difference. Okay. Um, and that is to say that, that, um, that it is always first God's initiative. Always him first. Um, and indeed, he even prepares us to receive his grace. Um, and everything we do should be a response to his love Um, this is essential God gives his grace freely and enables me to receive it so go ahead Um, strictly speaking no Uh, because we do actually believe in election Um, so uh, and and indeed every every um, Every part of Catholic Christianity believes in, in some form of election, um, which is to say that um, there is common grace, yes, that everyone gets, rain on the unjust and the just, right? But there's also this understanding that um, God does call certain people to sanctification, does call certain people uh, to receive his grace. Now, of course, the question is, how many, right? Is it, is it the many or the few? Um, and I think Anglicanism tends to fall in with the many. Um, and that so many are freely offered God, his God's grace, um, and that in fact it's it's probably more a function of people rejecting his grace. <laughs> yes, uh, so that's part of the that's part of the standing. That's actually a standing, wonderful question for theologians to just ponder on you know forever. So uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a standard big you know big deal question. Um, shall shall those who are saved be many? Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's this ongoing thing. So. Um, but I would say that uh, that that the teaching is yes. There are some there are some actually who do not receive that grace. Um, but anyway, that's that's another. I I would hold I would say that strongly. Okay, because we believe in election. There we go. All right. Um, uh, I sh- I should note as well. You know, Pelagianism is a particularly uh, english kind of heresy so if you have english ancestors you can sort of look and say man my whole family tree is tinged with this sort of pelagianism because it it just got in the ground and it stayed forever and ever and ever um and and i would say it's very prevalent today if you ask just kind of joe on the street you know how is it that you get to go to heaven well, I think I'm a generally good person, you know, and I do this and I do that, and, and I think God will be okay with me, right, at the end of the day. Um, well, there's your Pelagianism, right? I mean, it is it is theologically not distinct from from a doctrine of grace and sanctification at all, uh, or it is it is it's it's not. Well, I I misspoke there. You know what I'm saying? It's it's to say that um, that 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 kind of thought, that kind of impulse, is not distinct from Pelagianism at all. It just isn't shall we move on okay i hope you're seeing this the forgiveness of sins in the creed is an incredibly important thing because were it not for uh, god's action in forgiving us and redeeming us would would any form of sanctification any form of of doing right be possible see this is this is where it's really important that we hold this um From the earliest, earliest days, as long as Christian bishops have been gathering in council, the notion that we can do anything good apart from grace has been completely rejected. Um, And this is actually a really important thing. I think for a lot of people growing up in very Protestant evangelical churches, they've actually heard this accusation against Catholic types, that Catholic types hold that you can do good things apart from grace. And in fact, the answer is, they reject that notion just as much as you do. Um, there's a bit of difference in terms of how that works out practically, but there is a, there is a very clear rejection of the idea that, um, that you can t- undertake good actions apart from grace. Um, of course, just to get a little nerdy for a little while, um, there, is, there is an interesting question, which is, is there a kind of natural prudence, for instance, that everybody has? And uh, and I think the answer would be yes, right? There is a kind of natural prudence, but the kind of prudence that God demands is of a different sort, of a different um, of a different uh, of a different magnitude. Um, such that uh, to act in a in a prudent manner um, and and in such a way that we are we are giving of ourselves for God's glory and honor in our prudent acts, that's a different question. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a difference there. And I would say, like you know, uh, for Thomas Aquinas, this is like, you know, it's the difference between a prudent pirate and a prudent doctor. Yeah? Like, a prudent pirate uses his prudence to do what? To steal and thieve and the rest, right? Uh, a prudent doctor uses his prudence to heal. Yes? So they're two totally. To, you know, in the in the practical outworkings, they're they they can be quite similar in appearance. Um, so that's just a thought. But but basically, it's that um, that uh, when when virtue is 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 attached to grace, and when in fact virtue comes about because of grace, um, it is actually turned towards God's purposes, and that makes it the the real deal. So go ahead. Ah, uh, very much so. So the question is, how does, how does this notion of grace play into missionary efforts? Uh, deeply, deeply. Um, and let me think if I can, see if I can consider this for a moment. Yeah, the, the great Anglican missionaries, and by the way, we're all going to meet one on, um, on December 18th. Jerry Kramer is going to come and speak. Uh, uh, and uh, so please do be here for that and, and ready to hear but the understanding is that um, whatever they do is primarily a work of, of reaping. Uh, <laughs> that, in fact, God is already calling the people that they're going to meet to conversion and to repentance. So that, that work of grace is very prevalent. In fact, he tells stories that are, that are actually, if, if you really read into this in amazing ways, um, there, there is stuff going on in the Middle East that you would not believe right now. Um, People are having dreams about Christians appear you know Christians appear to them in dreams and and the voice in the dream says, "Listen to this man, he will show you the way of life." And then they're walking along the road one day and they see the guy they saw in their dream. And who is it? Some kind of missionary, right? <laughs> or Jesus, right? It's some kind of missionary. Um, and and the you know these are Muslim people walking walking you know. And seeing people, and they say, "I in a dream it was told to me." Right? By the way, in Islam, there's this whole uh, uh, spirituality of dreams, right? So you're supposed to trust what you see in a dream, because by the way, much of what Muhammad received in prophecy was through dreams. Okay, so you're supposed to trust your dreams. Um, but that's just an example. Is that in the mission field? That's how it works. God prepares the ground, and and you uh, and you come in, and and uh, and it's 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 already going. So. Um, I, I think this is to say that the kind of, the kind of mission work, and I, by the way, I, I will say this. I actually don't think there are actually credible missionaries who don't operate in that way. I mean, if you, if you meet a missionary who's like, we do all this work and, and we save lots of people and blah, 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 it's like, no, yeah, you're probably, you're probably off track, right? Because, because, again, it's not the work of mission by human beings which, which leads to good fruit, is it? What is it? It's grace. God's look, the best missionaries all say this. They say God has a mission, right? And what's the mission? To love and save lost humanity, right? And that mission is what Jesus is a part of, right? And that mission is what we are a part of here in Waco. Um, but it's God's work, and uh, and He, by His grace, enables us to to participate in it. Okay, that's really important. Okay. Let's say a bit about the resurrection of the body. How should you think of the human body? My body is the good and God-given means of my experience, expression, enjoyment, love, and service within God's good creation. But sin and death now infect this world, and my body will degenerate and die. You see the two? (laughs) Just when you get your hopes up, you're thinking, oh, that's really great, and then... Uh, But sin and death now infect this world. I've said this before. Sin is a terminal disease that we are all dying from. Um, And and you will die of it, and I will die of it. Um, And yet at the same time, we can say that the human body is the good and God-given means of my experience, my expression, enjoyment, love, and service. Um, If you are disembodied, could you have an experience as just a soul floating around in the ether? Maybe, probably not, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, in order, to, in order to touch, in order to feel, in order to taste, what do you have to have? You have to have a body, okay? Um, in order to reason, what do you need? You need a body, you need a brain, yes? Um, in order to love others, what do you need? You need a body, yes. In fact, in fact, this is this is what we're going to start to. You know, this is what the incarnation is about, in a sense, yes. Um, is it to say that God can perf- can God perfectly love without a human body? That's, there's sort of a quagmire there, isn't there? Right. And yet, maybe, but He doesn't, does He? What does God do in order to perfectly love us? He inhabits a human body. Do you see? So, so this is a this is a very key um, this is actually a key understanding to Christianity is that um, that embodiment is at the heart of 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 our faith. Um, But we do hold that that but sin and death now infect this world and my body will degenerate and die. Um, You know, we die not because uh, the heart stops pumping and the brain stops having waves. Uh, Why do we die? Because we're sinners. Right? Now, does that mean that, uh, you know, Aunt Jo's going to die of cancer because she committed some grave sin? Well, not necessarily, right? <laughs> but, but it does mean that, uh, that death, we experience death because of sin. Um, all right. Where do you go after you die? When I die, my body will perish. By the will of the God, my soul will live on, awaiting resurrection and final judgment. Okay, so my body will perish, um, and what this essentially means—you know, you know what it looks like, right? Your body decomposes. Yes, is it still your body? Yes. Okay, let's keep that clear. It's still your body, uh, but your soul uh, continues on. This is this is Christian teaching. Um, now, where does the soul continue on? Yeah. <laughs> There needs to be a, great, a better way to say I don't know in English that's a little more like the French say it, you know. Um, but it is to say that, 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 the, that the body, that the body uh, decomposes and the soul lives on. Um, and, and in truth, um, you know, when we speak of the resurrection of Christ and indeed his descent among the dead, do we, and this is a, this is a great question, do we teach that he goes bodily among the dead? Well, in a sense, his body goes to the tomb, right, which is the place of the dead, but not, uh, not to Sheol, right? His soul goes to Sheol. So there's there's a separation there which occurs, um, but this is not a permanent separation, and I think that's the key. So we'll say that. Go ahead. That's a great question. By grace, probably, right? Yeah. um needless to say i think i think here's here's the here's the essential issue right the essential issue is that for most americans they envision a disembodied heaven a disembodied afterlife where the body is left behind and never to be gathered up again and uh and so much is justified in this way it's well i don't need it right uh so forget about it. it doesn't matter um so you know, just throw me out, throw me on the woodpile out back. You know, and I'll be happy, right? <laughs> it's it's no. Um, the the body is sacred, and, and here's why. Let's turn to one forty four, and then we'll we'll see it. So I'm glad that you have the opposite impulse, right? Which is to say, how can I really worship God without a body? But most people have the opposite impulse uh, to that. Um, but more about that in a bit. Go ahead. Yes. So, uh, you know, Dr. Hess was just saying this, this leads so many people to mistreat their bodies as if their bodies don't matter, because after all, my body's just going to die and it's going to be left behind, and I'll have this kind of disembodied life forever. Um, and uh, And, no, seriously, care of the body. So this is one of the things that's surprising about the Church Fathers. I remember having a conversation with a particular patristic scholar and, and one member of, we were sitting together one night, and he said, well surely there's something, uh, this is kind of an academic question, but he was like, surely there's something good about modern thinking about the body, and, and that that's all very good, and, and that's got to be much better than, the, than what the church fathers thought, and this, this guy looked and he's like, yeah, the, church, the church fathers cared a lot more about the body than you do, right? Uh, and, and what they were saying was, look at, look at the kind of hospitals they open, look at the kind of asceticism which they follow, look at the kind of ways in which they treat the body um, as, as, a, as, a, as the image bearer of, of God, um, but also look at the ways in which they believe that the body will be raised, right? And therefore you take care of this body. Okay. So this is actually getting, getting straight to the question. I do wanna say one thing though, which is that um, this, this false dichotomy between body and soul has led churches in particular to say, well, we're only concerned with spiritual things; we're not concerned with the body. Okay? We're only concerned with the soul, not with the body. Major problems across the board, right? Um, it's it's led us to not think about embodiment as really mattering, right? Um, it's it's actually led to confusion on things like gender. It's led to confusion about things like um, uh, the place of medicine. Um, it's and it's led in all sorts of wild directions, right? To where there are some churches, even in this very town, who would prefer that you not go see a doctor. Um, Because, after all, your problem is not a physical problem, your problem is a spiritual problem. To which I would say, and I think we would say, it's both, okay? It's both. Let's get this straight. It's both, right? Uh, Right. yeah. This kind of minimalistic, I mean, always be always be wary of minimalism, okay? <laughs> because I think it should be apparent we don't live in a minimalistic universe, do we? Well, um, oh, there we go. Okay, question 144. What is the resurrection of the body? When Jesus appears on Judgment Day, he will bring all the dead back to bodily life, the wicked to judgment and the righteous to eternal life in the glory of God. Okay. When Jesus appears on Judgment Day, so this is a major Advent theme, isn't it? Jesus is coming back. To do what? To judge the living and the dead. Yes? But before judgment comes what? The resurrection of the dead. Okay? Um, one of the things we focus on in Advent is uh, the quote-unquote four last things, which are, which are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Okay, this is, this, this uh, answer encapsulates all four of those. Um, you and I will die. Uh, And our bodies will be raised. Now, how will they be raised? Just like this? Yeah, in a way, but how how should we think about the resurrection of the body? There's a really prime way. This is where you get your Sunday school answer out, you dust it off, and you just say it. Jesus, okay? (laughs) Jesus is how we know what the resurrection body will be like. Look at Jesus. In his resurrected body, is it a body? Is it his body? Okay, it's the body which was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. Yes? Okay. But! What? It's different. It's changed. Um, He can appear through locked doors. Right? Uh, It appears that he can eat. Does he have to? No. Can he disappear and reappear at will? Apparently so. Okay. Um, so a lot of people look at this and say, well, obviously the resurrection isn't bodily. To which the response is, your idea of bodily is way too narrow. Right? Uh, You've got to use some imagination about what the body will be like. right?" So this is, this is a really important part. Um, we've got to have an imagination about this this bodily life to come. Uh, But it is to say that we will have a body. Um, Now, if you really want some good news, uh, I I wish it was a little better than this, but uh, Augustine actually opines that uh, in the resurrection, all of our bodies will be like they were when we were 33 years old. Now, why does he say that? Because Jesus' risen body, which will never age... Is his thirty-three-year-old body, so we will have a thirty-three-year-old body, right? Now, some of you are like, "Yes," and some of you are like, "No." <laughs> I want my nineteen or twenty-year-old body. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, no, it's to say that it's to say that the, the risen body is perfected, um, and it it even it even it share it gets one really great thing. It is a glorified body. Um. Meaning that it is no longer bound in certain ways uh, like time and space, um, no longer held to the, cons- to, the um, to the to the to uh, the restrictions which are placed upon our bodies. Right? Okay. All right. Now, this resurrection, everybody is raised. Yes, not just not just those who are going to heaven, not just the elect, not just uh, and. And uh, I think this is often the way that people will will think of it. They'll say, well, you know, you only get a body back if you're good. (laughs) What's the Christian teaching on this? The resurrection of the dead is universal. Now, why is it universal? Because the resurrection of Christ from the dead has universal implications. It shows that this is not only his fate, but the fate of all humanity. Right? So Paul says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay? So it's, there's, a, there's a construct there. All right. Now, some, the wicked, to judgment, and the righteous to eternal life in the glory of God. Um, and this is to say that following the resurrection of the dead comes judgment. But it is a bodily existence. In, in either place all right what do you know about the resurrected bodies of believers I know that they will match express and serve our redeemed humanity and be fully renewed in the image of Christ being fully glorified in him right. uh, we could walk down this road a little bit there's a teaching among the church fathers and also prevalent uh, very much in in uh, in, uh, in Really, you know, the the great theological minds all speak, in a sense, of deification or theosis. Um, And that is to say that essentially, uh, you know, going back to, for instance, um, uh, St. Athanasius once uh, opined and wrote that um, God became man that we might become even as he is. Um, Now, we become what we are not by nature, but we become it by grace, yes? Yes? become partakers of the divine nature. There are all kinds of uh, idioms used in Scripture uh, to convey this idea that, um, that uh, we, we become even almost subsumed up into divinity. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful way in which this is spoken of um, in the Fathers, uh, particularly in people like uh, Cyril of Jerusalem and, uh, and Origen and others, where they speak about the ascension of Christ— and his, his human nature, right? In the ascension, Jesus, what? What happens in the ascension? Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Okay. Well, what becomes of his human nature? Is it obliterated? No, it continues on. So get this. Right now at the right hand of the Father is a full human nature, a glorified human nature, a glorified human body. Yes? And this is kind of how the Fathers answer this question. They say, okay, well, what's it like, though? They say, here's what it's like. It's like when you put an iron in the fire. And what's iron like before you put it in fire? It's cold. It's dark. It's hard. But you put it in hot fire, and what does it become? It glows fiery orange. It, uh, it, uh, it's soft. It's malleable. Um, it even seems to have its own light from within it. Now, does it? Some of it's burning, but most of it's just super hot, okay? Um, And this is to say that that it, by nature, is still what? Still iron. But what properties has it taken on? That of the fire. So this is what human nature being subsumed up into the glory of God is like, in a sense, right? Um, Does that sound like fun? That should be, like, very hopeful, right? Go ahead. (laughs) Sure. Four thousand years now. What, what will your body be like? and then how would you speak the resurrection of the body? Oh, sure. That's if I have not been yet raised at four thousand years in the future. Um 4, years now. Yeah, so obviously I mean this is part of the this part of the great mystery of the resurrection of the dead is that, you know, um Bodies decompose, do they not? They, they absolutely do. They decompose into dust upon dust. Um, what's being spoken of in the resurrection of the dead is not God's sort of creative ability to be the master uh, at puzzles. Yeah? Like, I can take all this dust and put it back the way it was. No, it's to say that by, the, by his power, he can reanimate that which is dead. Um, can give life to that which seems to be beyond hope, um, so it is to say that yes, I mean our bodies will decompose absolutely, um, but it is also to say that in the resurrection we do hold that the body will be will be given life again, um, so I hope that uh, that's that's kind of that's the way to think about it yeah. And, and you'll also note that, I mean, recently there's been uh, big news in the Roman Catholic Church because uh, there, was, there was sort of a document. Roman Catholics, starting in Vatican II, had started to allow for uh, good Catholics to, uh, to be cremated, yeah? And a document came out recently which sort of warned against this, saying you might, not, you might want to rethink that um, because it doesn't really betray a hope in the Resurrection when you're kind of inhabiting a little urn as just your, uh, your your ashes, and of course the other things they warn against is things like you know wearing the ashes of your ancestors on a necklace, uh, 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 you, know, mm, uh, you know, being kind of kept on the mantle. Um, and and I think the reason is that the body is sacred even as it's decomposing, um, and uh, and and that's an important reminder, just just as a way of saying it. Um, is, is cremation wrong? I'm not going to come out and say that, okay? I'm just not. Uh, but I do think that there can be some, some wrong headed and, and rather, um, and, and uh, actions which, which deny the resurrection of the body uh, surrounding death. Um, so, there you have it. Uh, and, and a lot of this is just like, you know, uh, it was, it's very common today to go to memorial services where the body's not present. Have you been to one recently? I have. I used to have to do it all the time. It drove me nuts, and because uh, California would take forever to uh, to release the body. To the you know, John knows what I'm talking about because they have all these regulations. You know they have to they have to do inspections and the rest. Um, so you're constantly having funerals without bodies, and it's just very weird, very odd. Um, I mean, it's it's very hard for most clergy to remember the last time they had a casket at a at a at a, at a funeral. Um, and uh, so, so I think there's, there's some ways in which we can rethink this and sort of, um, and, and one way that I might just offer to you is that um, a lot of people are learning. There's actually a, 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 a woman in Austin who teaches this. Um, you can actually learn to wash and prepare for burial a body. And you can, you can sign your kids up for this class. LAUGHTER <laughs> Where you say, I want you to do this for me. Um, I want you to take this class with me so you can learn to do this. Um, because I want to be buried out back, and I want to be buried in a, in a simple wooden box. And uh, you've got to have some land to be able to do this. You can't usually do this without, within city limits. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to, to remember that. Um, when my grandmother died back in the summer, it was the first time, really any of my uncles, aside from my doctor uncle, had seen a dead body. It was utterly shocking to them. Um, so, so I think this is something that we have to kind of reawaken in ourselves. We have to reimagine this. Um, we've, we've, it, I will say this. Uh, we've lost a grip on what it means to be human because we're not thinking about death as much as we should. Um, so there you go right? Uh, <laughs> actually, this is actually one of my favorite bits about the, the Harry Potter movie, the Harry Potter books. Um, you know the ghost who inhabits the girl's lavatory, Moaning Myrtle? She's constantly thinking about death, and in this way, she serves in the books to remind the, the, the characters in the books of their mortality. Um, she's a very important part of the book. In fact, I think she's, she's at the heart of the books, um, a reminder of your coming mortality. And of course, when, and I don't want to spoil it for you, when Harry Potter actually dies, he, he's, he has become acquainted with death in a way that he was not before. When Harry's a little boy, he doesn't know about death, even though death has surrounded him his whole life. But he learns about it, not only by having some of his best friends die, but by having these reminders in his life of death. And I don't want to go off on the theology of Harry Potter, but that is a really important thing, right? It's a a really key key concept. um, Anyway, I I think the reason I say that is that we need to become acquainted with death in ways that we're not right now. Um, It's a very important part of being human. Okay, question 146. How does the promise of bodily resurrection affect the way you live today? Because my body was created good by God and is redeemed by him, I should honor it. I should refrain from any violence, disrespect, or sin that would harm, demean, or violate either my body or the bodies of others. Um, And I would actually say this, that that part of what what has led us to be rather uh, uh, flippant about sin, especially sin that we commit with our bodies, um, which by the way, I mean, I should note this even as I say this, you know, Usually the worst kinds of sin are the sin that you don't commit with your body. Sins of the mind, sins of the affect, pride, right? But sins committed with the body are also very difficult. And one of the things we have to say about it is that if you could be reminded for even a moment that your body is eternal, you would avoid all kinds of sin. Yes? Because he would say, I am using this eternal uh, thing that God has given me that is me, right? Uh, for evil, um, and it will change your it'll change your life. Um, when I was when I was back uh, when I was a youth minister, a parent asked me, um, "You know, that's all well and good that you're wanting to teach uh, teach these youth theology uh, and teach them all this stuff. I mean, it's all well and good, but but I'm more concerned about what happens when my son is in the back of a car with some teenage girl." And I said, "Frankly, I would much rather him be reminded that he inhabits an eternal body." than to be considering sort of um, uh, trite little moralisms. Yes? That's, that's really important, right? This is why we have to go at life with a theology specifically regarding the body, or we're doomed, right? Because, listen, all of this matters immensely. Um, one more thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, one of, the, one of the disastrous effects of being modern, being modern is that uh, we've sort of dispensed with aesthetics. Uh, beauty, right? Images, uh, uh, you know, you sort of look at really delicious food and really delicious coffee as sort of being extraneous, right? Who cares about that? Uh, and, and I think one of the great things that's happening today is that our culture is reawakening to the value of aesthetics, right? That beauty matters. Surrounding yourself with beautiful things matters. Uh, Having having art in your house is really important, right? Um, uh, Having, uh, you know, deliciousness around you is really important, right? Um, This will actually really affect your life. Right? It will remind you that you were made for glory, not for this sort of ho-hum, like, let's avoid all kinds of pleasures because they lead to sin, right? Uh, now, there's, there's the other end of that, too, uh, which is that we not be completely preoccupied with it. But I think it is important to balance that out in life, yes? Because um, remember, um, gluttony has sort of two sides to it. This is a great example of this. Gluttony has two sides to it. One is um, just eating whatever, no matter how it tastes, right? Right? and not really even caring about that. On the other end is caring a whole lot about who, how food tastes. Now, if you want to picture this, you know this when you're trying to feed your kids and they don't like what you put before them, right? They either eat way too much, and then they want candy and dessert afterwards, or they just look at it like, meh, Is it the same problem? Yes, it's the same problem. But it portrays itself in different ways. And this is just an insight into how the body works we need to have a proper appreciation of goodness we need to have a proper appreciation uh for 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 beauty because these things are good in and of themselves right okay, go ahead yeah. <laughs> yeah right yep absolutely yeah this is this is actually something that I, I could go on and on and on about forever and ever, but but it is to say that even for those of you who are students, you know, take some care. I know this may be really hard for you, but take some care to how your room is set up. You know, take some care to how your really crappy apartment is set up, right? Because because it it will change your life to have some beauty around you. Um, it will change your life to have to, to declutter, um, to, to simplify. So anyway. I'm off my high horse. Uh, we'll we'll talk more next week. Thank you.